subscription does hope that you enjoyed this rare and infamous moment that combines a first-rate disaster with genuine historical significance. But now it's time to take a deep breath and get those cameras out as we prepare to temporally reset you to one of the most fantastic catastrophes in history. Are you ready? everyone and happy new year and welcome back to the time shifters podcast this is christopher here with tom tom happy new year welcome back happy new year dude pretty exciting uh hopefully a wonderful holiday was had by all and everyone had a fun and safe new year here we are in 2023 starting our new series on the time shifters podcast we've left behind the year of the time traveler which again had so much fun with and ended on a high note. Uh, we are starting a new series. Uh, as I explained, I think I explained last episode, we thought this would just be a limited series and it quickly ballooned into, we can do this all year. <laughs> and that's where we decided to come up with the, well, it looked pretty theme for this year. <laughs> and I, I do think it's going to be a lot of fun. Hopefully, as we were saying uh, last episode, uh, hopefully you know these uh, movies will spark some discussion among the socials and and our listeners. Yeah, I think a lot of these uh, either based on nostalgia, based on um, the amount of effort that was put into the film, but maybe not came out the other side. Either way, we're going to get a little controversy. Uh, we're going to get a little, lots of discussion between probably you and I at the least. Uh, and there should be a lot for everybody to chime in on. Some of these are going to be favorites. Some of these are going to go, why is this on my li- on your list? <laughs> so should be a lot of fun. It's an interesting list that we've come up with. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think it will be fun. Uh, I was actually expecting... We'll get into it later. I was actually expecting to have a little bit more on this uh, movie that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, we don't really. I have only uh, one small, uh, well, just a couple small things. But I, it is right when we are recording this, it is right around the holiday season. Everyone's probably a wee bit busy. Yeah. So that may be uh, understandable, but maybe we'll get something uh, after the fact. Yes. As I mentioned, we are recording uh, just around the holiday season, so yeah, it's been a little uh, hectic and busy, I think, for everybody, including ourselves, so we haven't done a whole lot. You're a little busy because you've just moved into a new home, and again, congratulations on that. Yes, thank you. Uh, So yeah, I haven't been watching or doing a whole heck of a lot. I did see uh, Black Adam. It made its premiere on the uh, HBO Max Max or whatever it's called, Yeah, and uh, so I... Gave that a watch the other day. It's um fine. <laughs> I was kind of looking forward to it. I mean, ever since Shazam kind of teased it, I was looking forward to this sort of thing. Uh, Dwayne Johnson, I kind of, you know, I like a lot of the stuff he does. I was looking forward for that reason. Yeah, the film itself, it's got more problems than it does pluses. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as we were discussing prior to the start of the episode, I just found it incredibly chaotic. Um, 
it was trying too hard to cram too much into a little thing, but then Black Adam himself, uh, he is a niche character in the DC universe. He's not like your forefront character. You have to know who he is and where he comes from. And while this gave that background, you also can't kind of tell it without having some adversaries which if you're not going to pair them off against some of the larger, more obvious ones, so you pull out Justice Society, and now you got to explain who all they are and where they came from and all that, and it gets to be too much. My uh, initial review on it was exactly what you just said, is it was a movie that was trying way too hard. And it was trying to capture, artificially capture the sort of, magic that a lot of the early Marvel films managed to do naturally. Mm -hmm. And it just, yeah, it gave us these characters with just justice society. So we had to, you know, Hawkman and Adam Smasher and these characters and they felt forced into the movie and it felt like they were trying to force you to like them. Yeah. And a lot of super, most superhero films, you walk away wanting to see more from these superheroes. Right. In this movie, I never want to see any of these people again. Well, and, and like DC is, it does time and time again, especially on this scale. Um, they The characters that they introduce, I mean, you kind of have to be in the know for some of them. Uh, like you get Dr. Fate and Hawkman and stuff like that. Adam Smasher and God, I've already forgotten the girl's name. I, I have no idea who she was. Um, you have to wind kn- wind girl. Yeah, <laughs> you have to know who they are going into it because the the movie's not adequately explaining who they are and where they come from. And then, without spoiling anything, when something happens to a character that you have only just been introduced to over the past like 30 45 minutes <laughs> and right. something happens and you're supposed to care it's kind of hard to so mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah i can't help but wonder what fans of these characters thought of their portrayal because like dr fate i had sort of an impression of that character that didn't match the character that I was seeing in the film. And I don't know if it's just because I have such a limited experience with the character or if they totally got it wrong. Yeah. And since I never followed that particular, those kind of stories very often in the comics, my exposure to Dr. Fate is whatever, um, the justice league series that spawned from Batman, the animated series and Superman, the animated series, it's whatever they did in that. So, yes, that's that's exactly my ex- uh, experience with them as well. So, I mean, like, it, it was cool to watch them in that sense, bring him in, tell a little of his story, but that's not enough to go on, and it's not enough for this movie for me to care. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it was unfortunate, and, you know, there's a, I guess a... Oh, and how do you like that... Uh, I don't know. Should can we, can we spoil it? I, Maybe we shouldn't spoil it. It's still relatively new. So I got, I was going to talk about the uh, the end credit scene, but 
Actually, I think you can uh, talk about that, okay? Because that is just all over. I was going to mention okay. a little bit about it because it's all over the internet, anyways. Because after this one, of course, DC brings in James Gunn to start helming their DC properties, much like Kevin Feige uh, does it for Marvel. And he's essentially said anything that we've done, that's it. No. That we're not doing that anymore. So most of the actors that have taken up the mantles in what we've seen are now not going to do that. So, so yes, uh, Superman makes an appearance at the end of Black Adam. That, I think, is pretty much common knowledge at this point. Okay. Um, if you're listening to us on the Internet, you've probably already read that. <laughs> <laughs> and you've probably already read that um, they, they've... Henry Cavill has essentially been fired as Superman. He isn't going mm -hmm. to be returning to the character. And this was supposed to be the reintroduction of him to playing the character. <laughs> so, right. Um, and honestly, that, that part, I find that a shame because mm -hmm. despite the terrible DC films that were there, he was a fantastic Superman. He just wasn't given good properties to be in. Yeah, exactly. Now, that whole situation was so weird because I think the way it went, the studio gave him the go-ahead to say, yes, you can, you can say that you'll be coming back as Superman, which he did. Yeah. And then he shows up, you know, at the end of Black Adam as Superman. And then James Gunn comes in and says, I'm sorry, you're not Superman anymore. Right. <laughs> wait, wait, what? I had the job, and then I got fired from the job before I even had the job. <laughs> There's that, yeah. I mean, it goes all the way across the board. Gail Godot is uh, is an amazing Wonder Woman. Nope, not anymore. I, I simply, I, I can't imagine who they would have <laughs> for either role. The Snyder verse, however you feel about it, because no, it wasn't great, but they did have fairly good actors and fitting ones in the characters that they they were playing. Some better writing and some better story would would solve that problem. You don't have to abandon what you laid down entirely. You can just go, okay, that we did we introduced that. Now let's just make it better. <laughs> right. But no, we're not going to get that opportunity. Yeah, I think I uh, remember reading James Gunn wants to go with a younger Superman. Yeah, he wants to start, like, earlier. Right, well, my initial thought is, hasn't that been beaten to death? How many young Superman, Superboy, television stuff has gone on? Do we need it in films as well? The only thing I can guess, and, and I, I haven't... I haven't been involved in actively reading any of the comic book series in a long time. But when I got out was when they introduced what was called the New 52. And when they did introduce that, um, Superman was introduced as a younger version of himself. Not Superboy and not Smallville kind of stuff. It was him... Probably mid late twenties, and and he is both Clark and Superman. And I think that's what he's shooting for—is that new fifty-two feel. Mm. But 
from what I remember from catching any of that stuff, I really didn't like the direction they went with on that. Do you think this is kind of um, to fit in with the Batman? The idea of it being you know, year one Batman? Honestly, no, because I don't see um, Gunn doing like I don't think he'll be involved at all with anything to do with the Batman. Right. No, I'm, I, the, but I just meant that the fact that that franchise has kind of rebooted itself and brought um, in yeah. the, and, and portraying Batman as the young, early Batman, yeah, year, year one, one Batman, year two Batman, would James Gunn be looking at that going, OK, well, let's do Superman in his uh, early career as actual Superman? Yes, exactly. Perhaps. Um, I don't know. Superman's a tough one anyways. Uh, Christopher Reeve nailed it. Um, yeah. Brandon Ralph got a rough uh, draw because actually I thought he'd be an excellent one, but the story was just... It was too much rehashing what the, they had already done in the uh, in the Christopher Reeve stories. Right. They didn't give him his own world and universe and bad guys to deal with. Um, right. So... He got a raw deal, and then now Henry Cavill, they went too far, and we got him too powerful, too quick, fighting characters on scales where all of us are mere ants by comparison. So mm-hmm. it it's hard to relate, <laughs> and it's hard to go how we're not all dead just in their presence. <laughs> so, right. So, yep. If you really think about it, Superman is like one of the most boring superheroes because he's he's the all-powerful superhero. Right. Going to like uh, back to Marvel, some of the, the Avenger films, like obviously if you go to the individual films, you know, if you go to an Ant-Man, you go to an Iron Man, you know they're going to come out on top. But when it came to the Avengers, sure. uh, you know, the plot armor wasn't as thick on some of those characters as you might have thought. Yeah, and it wasn't necessarily a guarantee everybody's coming out the other side. <laughs> and, and and that gave it a little edge. Not to mention, I not not to make it so much Marvel versus DC, but when it comes to the movie properties, um, Marvel did an excellent job with um, taking even some of their most powerful characters and grounding them making them more real, making them almost a little limited enough that you felt like they could exist in this world and we don't all die just by their presence. So DC went the other way entirely where everything else... They're way too strong. And actually, it became laughable in some of the Snyderverse stuff to even see Batman hanging out because you're like... Okay, you're a bug on the windshield compared to everybody else you're hanging out with. Yeah, well, they pretty much nailed it. The one line, you know, what's your superpower? I'm really rich. Wasn't that actually, you know, like a Ben Affleck line? Yeah. I just remembered uh, as we were talking about uh, the Marvel films. Um, let's see if there's any. Was there anything else you want to talk about Black Adam or the DC stuff or anything? Oh, no, no, no. Okay, great. Uh, I knew there was something I wanted to talk about at the top of the show, and, and just talking about the superheroes and everything, it made me think of something. Uh, just uh, not that long ago from be- before recording, uh, it was announced all the selections for the uh, National Film Registry of the Library of Congress, uh, the films that are going to be, uh, that have been selected to be preserved in the Library of Congress. Yes. 
And it was a really interesting list and very eclectic list. And I wanted to mention a few, and I'll top the one that I think you know fit in with fits in with our discussion that we're just had having is 2008's Iron Man is being selected is going to be preserved. I know uh, these films are selected for their cultural, historic, or aesthetic importance. And yeah, if you think about what Iron Man kicked off in two, you know back in 2008, uh, yeah, I think uh, cultural. Cultural and historic mm-hmm. would uh, definitely fit the bill there. Iron Man was one of those, if you were a Marvel fan, you knew who Iron Man was, but he was not, he's not like an A-lister kind of character. He, he He's the B-lister. He, he had his own story. He is a, in the Avengers, but he was kind of always a little more in the background. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you really had to follow him to know who he was. And to have that be a headlining and your first one out of the gate. <laughs> right. And, and to just knock it out of the park right out of the gate. Um, and and it gave new life for Robert Downey Jr. It, as well. It did, yeah. I, that, that reinvigorated his career big time. Oh, absolutely. And it's another one of these things where I don't know if there's ever going to be another Iron Man that's as good or as perfect as Robert Downey Jr. was in that role. <laughs> he was, uh, yeah, uh, without having read every single ever comic book of Iron Man, um, what little I have read of him, he just nails it. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. He is the character, uh, and I mean, he he's left a quite the mark on that, on the whole superhero world. Oh, yeah. And and so when he hangs up his uh, helmet there at the end of the uh, Avengers Endgame or whatever it is, like we were talking about before, where you do, where uh, Black Adam was trying to make you you know forcibly feel for characters. When Iron Man, you know, spoiler alert for if anyone who hasn't seen the, the last Avengers film, you know, uh, Tony Stark slash Iron Man sacrifices his life, and they have the funeral form and everything. You get emotional. That's an emotional moment because you've watched him for nearly 20 years in that role. Oh, yeah. No, people were devastated. And it was such a good way to even do it because um, they. Uh, it's still kudos to the entire studio that they can, uh, they can have these things all tie in so closely together. But, I mean, him, him going out for essentially the world, let alone the team. Um, the universe, right? Yeah, the the universe itself. Um, but for him to, to go out that way, it harkens all the way back to the first Avengers movie where Steve Rogers calls him out as the guy that won't, that won't take one for the team. He's not a team player. Mm-hmm. He's not, he's not going to make the call. And not only did he make it before he got to the end of that movie, but then he makes the big one <laughs> at the end of that series. Yes. So it just, everything about it just hit right. It was an emotional thing. And when you think about, these are comic book characters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they're making you feel real feelings. And that, that, that that's like amazing. Just to talk a little bit more about this list, I just pulled a few out of here. There, the list is much longer than what I'm going to talk about, but Carrie from 1976. Oh, wow. Nice. 1950s Cyrano de Verjac, 
I added that one only because I've seen that film. We covered it over on Orphan Entertainment. Phenomenal film. Yeah. I am so happy that it is going to be preserved. That is definitely one worthy of it. Uh, 1988's Hairspray, which I've never actually seen. <laughs> I've seen that. That's a fun one. All right, cool. 1990's House Party. <laughs> uh, as I said, Iron Man. Uh, 89's The Little Mermaid, the Disney animated feature. That kind of... Um, I think that's that's the film that sort of re-kicked Disney uh, back into the uh, zeitgeist, I think. I still remember that one kind of fondly. I can... You saying the words, I can hear the music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so let's move on. Yes. <laughs> uh, 1972's Superfly, Black's exploitation film. <laughs> Very cool. And 89's When, Mar- when Harry Met Sally. That... If you don't know the film, you know at least one scene from the film. I guarantee. Well, it. it's been it's been spoofed so many times by so many other properties. I it's just a very interesting list, and it's just so amazing to see a superhero film. I, how long ago was it when it's something like in science fiction or a superhero film would be? The, the, it may have been the biggest box office success or whatever but when it came to like actually acknowledgement from like its peers Mm -hmm. crickets and now it's something that's being you know selected by the library of congress to be preserved for all time i the last time i can even think of anything remotely like that was when uh the last lord of the rings movie got an oscar right yeah, that's within recent memory, but there was a time when you go a little further back oh, yeah. where, you know, like, uh, yeah, you can't really give that an Oscar. That's a kid. That's a kiddie film right. kind of, you know, mentality. And now they're real players. And, and like we we're you said before that, you know, these are characters that people feel emotions for, like legitimate emotions over. So it's it's no different than your your notebooks or your you know, my left foots or whatever. It's it's still pulling on the same heartstrings. It's just doing it with a, while wearing a cape. Yep. The only thing I wanted I'll mention really quick that I watched it was something that came up on Amazon Prime I think, mm-hmm. and it just seemed like it was like one of those things that it kept popping up and that you might like. Not exactly sure why I thought I'd like this. It was really close. It was a 1986 film called Vicious Lips. I had never heard of it. Oh, it was so close to being something that I would absolutely love. (laughs) There's a phenomenal short film stuck in this feature-length mess. (laughs) If If you could chop out like 30, 45 minutes of it and just clean up the dialogue a little, you would have a film that I would just absolutely, I would watch it constantly because it would be that this perfect little snapshot of the 80s you know it's it's the big hair it's the 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 makeup uh the 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 clothes style the music it'd be so much fun but this thing is just padded out with just stupid like long moments of nobody saying anything and a guy walking through a desert and then of course the the, the gratuitous and for absolutely no reason naked women, you know, show up kind of thing. And it's like, wh- why? <laughs> it, it almost makes me angry because I want to like it because of the, the bits that I do like. Yeah. 
you know, I want to be able to like justify watching it again just for those little those moments. But as a whole, I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> so it's really frustrating. <laughs> Could it be that you love to hate it or hate to love it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure. I have actually requested a... uh, I found it on a multi-disc set, like cult favorites or something from the library. And I have requested it. I think I'm going to just... I I think I'm going to edit my own version. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I had a buddy do that with the Superman movies, so why not you? (laughs) I'm going to make my own short film out of it. There you go. Something that I can watch and just, I can just watch the, the highlight reel. The non-director's cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was just, it was frustrating the whole time I'm watching it. And it, it, I kept going from these moments where like, this is awesome. I'm tapping my foot. I mean, this is really great music. It's almost like a bunch of music videos tied together. Nice. <laughs> And I was like, this is really cool. It's kind of fun. It, it takes place in, like, supposedly the, the future. So there's, like, this, you know, but it has this uh, rock band off going to, like, the big break. And they have to fly there in the spaceship. But the spaceship crashes. And in between, there's this the music, you know, and I'm like, all right, this is cool. And then the music stops. And then just painful things happen. I'm like, <laughs> is this, like, this is, like, torture, isn't it? Did it stick Ishtar somewhere in the middle of it? <laughs> <laughs> I think it might have. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, I, I don't know if anyone else has seen this thing. Like I said, I had never heard of it, and it's very rare for me to come across a, a 1986 film that had anything to do with science fiction. It was an Empire picture, so this is all Charles Band, the guy that went in, went on to do like all the Full Moon pictures oh, okay. and stuff. So this is one of his early productions. So, yeah, the fact that I hadn't heard of it or anything was surprising to me. And now that I have, it's like, ah, oh, <laughs> This one sounds like it's going to be the one that sticks in your craw for a while. Yeah, I'm I'm going to make a road trip to, I think Charles Band is just in northern Ohio somewhere. I'm going to go up there and just ding dong. <laughs> Chuck, got to ask you about this thing. <laughs> Well, there's other ways that we've come across an interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it for me. Uh, I don't have anything else. Uh, I think it sounds like before we sat down to recording, you were telling me that you've been pretty busy. So I don't think you've done and watched a whole heck of a Not lot. Not a whole heck of a lot. Like, uh, like we were discussing earlier, I have been revisiting the old cartoon series from the 90s, uh, The Exo Squad. right yeah and and it's kind of funny 90s is just stamped all over this because the hairstyles and and, and the uh, (laughs) uh, it's clearly just post 80s everything's all puffy and colorful and and the part I can't get over and the part why I'm still diving into this one is the overarching story is so good um, and the concept of these, uh, their vehicles uh, and weaponry all interactive directly from their brainstem was very cool, very, very cutting edge at the time. Um, and I, would, I, I keep envisioning taking at least the, uh, the theme of the thing and turning it into something so much better than it was because it was... It, it was a cartoon designed to sell toys. 
and it did so effectively because you and I bought some even. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, I had a hand. At least I had a, a good like almost half dozen of them. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I know at least I had the actual squad, the uh, the Alpha oh, Squad yeah. or whatever they were called. But uh, um, but I just it gets painful at times because it's clear that they just want to sell the toys, so they have the battles and things are just crashing and booming and they're flying around and, and all that and i'm like all right get back to the story because the story is actually good <laughs> i even love their concept of their neo sapiens the improvement on human beings bigger stronger smarter multiple thumbs <laughs> it just worked but then it's tough watch now <laughs> yeah yeah i remember the underlying theme had dealt a lot with um like with like racism and um you know fear of the other sort of thing it did uh actually uh, it it clearly stole uh, and and not that battlestar galactica didn't steal it from elsewhere but i mean the neo sapiens story is essentially the same as the cylon story human beings make a creation for their bidding and it goes wrong when all of a sudden those the things that are doing our bidding would like their own lives. <laughs> so, right. Uh, and, and actually, it is stated in one of the episodes that humans have a gift for creation, but not the understanding of the consequences of of doing. Um, and I'm like, that's pretty deep for a cartoon meant for kids in the '90s. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of these, sometimes these shows had good writers. Mm -hmm. And they were writers that were trying, they wanted to do more with their lives than write for kids' cartoons. And so they would weave in stories like that so they can show it later, like, yeah, yes, it was for a toy commercial, but... No, it it hit hard because I just recently watched what was... and this one was prone to having continuing stories. So even though it's a little half-hour cartoon, um, the stories themselves are movie length. So several of them had arcs that were three or four parts long. So you had to watch the whole thing to understand. And there was this one... The story arc at the very end of the first season all deals with essentially the this race that the humans have made have now also gotten to a point where they could populate the solar system and completely replace human beings altogether they don't need human labor they could just wipe out humanity and become the dominant species of the solar system this is laying before them and of course the humans are here to wipe that out because they don't want to be extinct but they also have a neo that works with them and he is struggling with the notion of wiping out his own kind just to prevent this and he ends up doing a whole betrayal thing that they they did not telegraph it just happens so watching it unfold the way that it did it was really good storytelling for something of this nature so I was very impressed. Uh, I'm enjoying rewatching it, but then you slide into the whole. Some episodes, the first 15 minutes are nothing but shoot them up, and you don't hear anybody say anything. <laughs> right. 
I was just uh, reminded that you're talking about you know, writers when they, they start out with kids shows, but you know they want to do go on to bigger and better things. I just was reminded of uh, Michael J. Straczynski, mm-hmm. who uh, did some work. If you remember the old um, Jason the Wheeled Warriors, oh yeah, and apparently he also worked on uh, like Shira Princess of Power. Oh, cool! Huh. But uh, he didn't. Apparently, he didn't get any credit for it. <laughs> And that's that's he left and then went to Jason the Wheeled Warriors, and then he uh, did some was story editor on the uh, television series Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future, yeah. and that literally was a toy commercial because you had to, you could buy toys that you would interact with the yeah, actions you, on the you, TV. You could shoot at the screen while <laughs> while the the show right. was on. Yeah, and you know he kept going on to bigger and better things, and eventually creating you know like something like Babylon Five. Mm-hmm. Well, he's a comic um, book writer as well. Yeah, exactly. He had a fantastic career, but it all started with kids shows. Mm-hmm. I, I, w- I would love somebody to take a deep dive I- I- into this series themselves who is a writer and see about making something for now. Because the storyline's completely relevant. Um, mm-hmm. And if you actually put some effort behind this, you could turn out a really good, solid, compelling property. Yeah, that would be a property that is definitely ripe for a uh, a, a reimagining, mm-hmm. and to see it. I mean, if we've got Thundercats and uh, <laughs> and stuff like that already, yeah, we could use an Exo Squad. Yes, no, that that would look really cool with today's animation. Absolutely, I could see it going live action. That actually would be a big budget. Oh, that so actually all out. Yeah, um, I wouldn't even say I, I wouldn't say movie. I would say series. Series. Do a I'd series absolutely. And Put it on the streaming. Total yeah. hardcore. Take the take the really deep, meaningful storyline and run with it. Could you see something like Exo Squad and like uh, like on Prime, like um, the Expanse level of? Actually, that would be amazing if they they had tied like the expanse kind of feel to it. Um, mm-hmm. Build in the biological development of a of a race of the Neo Sapiens. Build out the notion of terraforming the uh, the inner planets. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, you could have a lot of fun with this, and, and you yeah, could I'd... make it really good storytelling. Amazon Prime. Tom and I are available <laughs> if you need any help with that's that right we can help uh you know, develop some stories for you concepts concepts by you know time shifters podcast that would work for me uh, I'm, I'm in let's do it all right well i think we will go ahead and take a break and uh, listen to a promo for another podcast and then when we get back we will kick off this series with 1984's the never-ending story Christopher, what insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? (laughs) People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. 
Yeah, but there are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. <laughs> oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something and review and discuss it. <laughs> that sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Why don't you click over to Orphan Entertainment and remind yourself a little more about the show. Oh, will do. Let's see, that's at orphanentertainment.com. And yeah, it looks like we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie someday? Mm-hmm, we'll see, Christopher. We'll see. What is the secret of this enchanted book? What wonders are hidden within its pages? What magical spell does it cast on all who read it? What is the secret of the never-ending story? But that's impossible! Enter a world where a young boy's imagination becomes a vivid reality. The world of Atreyu and Artax, the Rockbiter, and a good and kind gnome. A world that is vast and eternal, treacherous and dazzling, unforgettable and free. For anyone who's ever made a wish believed in a fantasy or had a dream this is the never-ending story never-ending story was co-written and directed by wolfgang peterson and this is his first english language film it is based on a 1979 novel of the same name by michael endy it's e-n-d-e i'm assuming it's endy my apologies if it's not (laughs) In the film, young Bastion is struggling in school after the recent death of his mother. His father, a seemingly uptight and practical man, wants Bastion to stop daydreaming and grow up. On his way to school, Bastion escapes from a group of bullies by hiding in a bookshop. The owner tells Bastion of a very special book that he is reading, a book that is much too powerful for young Bastion. But while the shopkeeper is distracted, Bastion takes the book and runs to school. As classes have already started, he hides away in the school attic and begins to read the book, The Never-Ending Story. He reads of the fantastic land of Fantasia and its strange inhabitants who are threatened by the Great Nothing, a mysterious force destroying everything it, it encounters. Only a young hero, Atreyu, can save the land and the life of the childlike empress, but he has to survive many dangerous tasks and contend with the evil giant wolf, Gamork, who is tracking him. Slowly, Bastion discovers that he is, much a, he is as much a part of the story as Atreyu, and the fate of Fantasia and the Empress rests in his imagination. Film stars Noah Hathaway as Atreyu, previously seen as Boxy on the original Battlestar Galactica. Barrett Oliver as Bastion, and with Alan Oppenheimer, uh, past Cincinnati Comic Expo guest, providing the voices of both Luck Dragon Falcor and Gamork. We'll add this, that the author was initially really happy to see his book turned to film and worked with the director as a script advisor, 
but apparently uh, Peterson almost completely rewrote the thing without Indy's knowledge. And with the story now deviated, deviating so far from the source material, Indy asked that his name be taken off the project and actually sued to have the, uh, the either production stopped or the film title changed, a case that he obviously lost. Indy called the film a, quote, gigantic melodrama of kitsch, commerce, plush, and plastic. <laughs> so how do you really feel about it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, well... Having read the synopsis of the actual uh, novel, I really want to read this novel because it sounds really great. The movie only is a small fraction of what takes place in the original novel. Interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know much about the novel, so I might have to dig into that one. Yeah, no, it sounds like it would be a pretty epic read. This came out in 1984. I no, I did not see it in the theater. I think this was a early VHS rental sort of film for me, or an early cable film. Yeah, I think this would have been something back in the day I would have caught on 19 matinee kind of thing. We com- you, you commented earlier before we started recording, you looked into the Wolfgang Peterson. Yeah, we didn't really realize um, that this was a name that we knew really well. <laughs> We've even done some of these films. <laughs> yeah, at least one of them. I know we've spoke. Uh, we've we've uh, talked about outbreak. So right. Yeah. No, that's definitely the one that we did. I. Yeah, it did. It did not connect to me whatsoever. No, and I, I, I even as we were doing uh, outbreak, I don't think I looked up to see any of his uh, prior filmography. So to find out the same man that did. Outbreak did the never-ending story. It was kind of like, huh. <laughs> right. Famous for directing Das Boot, a uh, mm-hmm. German film, a uh, German war film. Does a never-ending story. Goes on to do Enemy Mine, which we were both discussing, that is begging for a revisit. Yeah. I've been meaning to revisit that thing for decades. Doesn't fit into our year exactly, but... No, it does not. But I think that's going to be just a personal watch on my hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Outbreak, uh, Air Force One, which was a, a, a actually a kind of a fun little action film with Harrison Ford. Yeah, uh, In the Line of Fire was another one. Uh, that's mm-hmm. um, And then went on to do The Perfect Storm, Troy, Bo- Poseidon. Yeah. All big action films. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, very interesting. Uh, had, had no idea. Watching it for the first time in what has to have been... 20 years, I'm going to say it's probably closer to 30 years for me. Uh, The first thing that really struck me is that this film could use a stronger editor. Yeah. There are moments where it feels like the scene maybe drags on for just like a split second too long, or it cuts too quick. Right. Or the scene goes from just from one thing to something else that's just so different than what was before that it feels a little unnerving. It's just, it sets you off a little bit. Yeah. Cause there, there are some moments where there's some heightened action and clearly it overwhelms Bastion in that moment and we don't get back to it. We move on and, and, and it does, it's a little bit of a jackknife in the middle of uh, the watching. 
you know, there was one moment in particular I remember I was watching, and the scene goes, and it's got the, you know the soaring music and everything, and then the music fades and stops, and the scene's still there, <laughs> and then it changes. <laughs> like, like, what the hell was that? <laughs> you couldn't drag that note out just one more second? <laughs> Or, or cut the scene at the end of the note. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a couple of uh, things like that. Um, they're uh, watching it at this age, um, and, and I've seen it more recently than you because I think I watched this with my son at one point, um, probably a couple years back when he was younger, and this would have been right up his alley. Mm-hmm. Um Bastion and, and and his family dynamic and, and all of this, uh, the part, I, I guess it's the father in me. Um, it, it's clear, like, his dad's not a bad guy. He, 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 he's going through the struggle of losing their his mother as well. Um, they're trying to just get through their day-to-day. Um, clearly, they're in a hurt place. Bastion doesn't come home that night. <laughs> like, like I, I, I get that he's struggling with, uh, with the bullies before school, and it, it makes him late for school. And, and then he decides, since he's already missing the math test and he's got this book that he stole, I'm just going to go read it. And I, I get some of that, but the school closes. <laughs> It gets dark. There's there there's a thunderstorm outside, and he's continuing to read this book. And all I can think while I'm watching that is, his dad is going ape shit right now. <laughs> Where is yeah, my a, son? <laughs> there's a whole nother movie Absolute. about the search for Bastion. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and then when it all boils down to apparently a kid and his luck dragon flying down. <laughs> Central Main Avenue. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't see him getting out of trouble just because that happened. <laughs> yeah, though there is definitely uh, there's some there, there there there's bills to be paid <laughs> the next day. <laughs> but but yeah, I, and that that's kind of to that point. It's kind of interesting film because uh, um, I saw it back when I was a kid and latched on to the fantasy aspect and admittedly none of the rest of that bothered me at all but at this age i take a completely different stance and i'm like that kid's ass is grass (laughs) yeah that is something that i think and i'm guessing it may come up in in some of the reviews you'll bring up later Depending on when you watch this film, I think your opinion of it is going to be vastly different. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's a little unfair of us to kind of review it, and we can't help but kind of pick at some of the uh, loose threads that are in the film because it really wasn't made for us. No, no, and it wasn't. And, and I'm having fun at this stage picking on those things realizing I can put myself still back in the fantasy uh, portion and go, I could get lost in that. Um, but yeah, it's it's a little fun at this stage going, I have a little different point of view now than I used to. <laughs> well, because as a kid, you're not going to pick up on, you know, one of uh, 
Atreyu's task is to get past get past these 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 uh, giant sphinx mm-hmm. that apparently look into your soul, and if you don't think you're worthy, or you don't you don't believe in your own self worth, you know they'll destroy you. And so he goes up there, and it all seems fine. And their eyes start to open, and they're going to shoot him. And he just runs fast and jumps past. Right. So, what happened there? I mean, so he doesn't believe in himself, but it's okay because he can just run fast enough to jump. If <laughs> it was really funny, I was watching it with my family, and my son's sitting next to me. That happens, and he looks at me. He's like, "Surprising, no one else has tried that already." <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, especially since you'd consider there's probably dead bodies all over the place in front of that. Which we see. We yeah, just we saw, just saw a, you know, the, a knight. one knight die. And we see other things, you know, partially buried by the sand. It looks like there's many bodies laying there that have tried to go through this thing and have failed. And no one. Yeah, apparently all you have to really do is just, you know, jump. Right. <laughs> it's quite the oracle, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. When you get to something like that, and as a kid, may if you're a kid of a certain age, um, maybe you don't even question that. Um, but yeah, you get a little older, and, and you start going, "What was the moral of that particular part of the story? Mm-hmm. Are you? Because this comes a couple of ways. I'm like, okay, so you have to be cocky to get past it. Or, I mean, most people have doubts in themselves at some point, so does nobody get past this thing? And the only Mm -hmm. way is to cheat? (laughs) I I don't know where they were going with that. (laughs) Yeah, and I I wonder, again, that makes me kind of want to... Go back to the novel. (laughs) Go back to the novel and see if, was was that really what the the task was? Was it the whole, you know, yourself, believing in yourself, or... Your, your, your self-worth and all that, or was it something different? Right. I have to think there is more to that part, and this was a failing in retelling and editing. <laughs> right. Oh, we got to get down on time. Let's not fuss over this particular piece. Yeah, and going back with the editing and everything, too, another thing I, I, I considered is this was an actual German production. Mm-hmm. Completely produced in Germany. Uh, at the time, it was like the biggest budget film produced outside of the United States and the Soviet Union. And I wonder if there might be something kind of lost in translation. Perhaps. You know, is there a sort of German mentality uh, that went into the production of the film that doesn't translate as well to American audiences? Perhaps. I mean, that is uh, where our director... Uh hails from it's where his experience was before this and as you said this whole production is done in germany so yeah hard to say some of the um characters that we meet in this film it's one of these films where i honestly wish we could have spent more time with the characters that aren't the stars right i could have done less with a treyu and more with like rockbiter <laughs> And uh, uh, the, the the snail rider, I don't remember his... Uh, I don't even know if he had a name, although it was no, fun they, to they see... They all had a name. i got to find the cast list here real quick. 
Uh, yeah, because uh, I know the uh, Teeny Weenie was his name, played by Deep Roy, who was a you know a phenomenal and a prolific uh, character actor and stunt actor. I mean, he he's been everything from an Oompa Loompa to <laughs> Teeny Weenie in here to uh, you name it. Well, and that was what was fascinating is this is a really young Deep Roy. Um, yeah, it was. He was pretty young at this yeah, time. Yeah, because by the time he did the Oompa Loompas in um, in uh, Tim Burton's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, um, yeah, he that there's some decades in between there. <laughs> well, there seemed to be so much more going on with them than what we actually end up seeing with Atreyu. One of the most powerful films. Forget all of Atreyu's tasks, and you know, uh, we'll talk about his, you know, his trial in the swamp and everything. Mm-hmm. I think the moment that really pulls at me was when we, towards the end of the film, when we're reunited with Rockbiter, mm-hmm. and he's st- sitting there alone. His friends are gone, and he's just completely remorseful, and he's he's withdrawn, and he's like, "My hands seem like such." strong hands but the, talking about how he's lamenting how he couldn't hang on to his friends when the great nothing came mm-hmm. that's a very powerful and and really great moment and it just feels like it's here it is and let's move on yeah and, and there was a lot of that in in this film every time you get to a point where um, you're getting into the scene at hand. We cut away and do something else, and we've moved on entirely. It's not like we're going to revisit that at all. Um, uh, what's the turtle's name? Morla. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we're we're having the conversation, and you're having a conversation with a being that has existed for eons, uh, to the point where um, he even says. I have no one to talk to, so I talk to myself, um, right. which is why he refers to himself as we. Um, and, right. And we are bored by you. And, yeah. And, and, and as Atreyu is starting to unravel how to talk to Morla, um, despite the whole hay fever <laughs> that that's going on <laughs> because apparently he's allergic to Atreyu. Um, but... While we're having that conversation, by the time we're actually getting anywhere, it's over. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I don't feel like we got the rest of that. Yeah. That's another great character. Yeah, the character who, like you said, has survived for eons and now has become so apathetic because it just doesn't matter to him. It, I don't care. You know, whatever you guys do, you 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 do. It doesn't bother me. It, it, it's not going to affect me. Why? Well, the nothing we is coming. It, 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 de- death would be something new for me. So, sure, yeah. let's do it. <laughs> yeah. So interesting. And, it, yeah, it's just it's just a passing thought in this film. Uh, Gamork is another one. This is something that we see bits and pieces of from the beginning of the film. We see him, you know, tracking Atreyu. We get glimpses of it, and we finally get a scene with him, and then he's dead. Yeah. And it's, like, just that quick. (laughs) Like, wait, that seemed like that was, like, going to be the the point of this entire film. Would have been, like, the showdown between Atreyu and Gamork. And it is over in 30 seconds. 
Yeah, and you were expecting more moral to uh, something deeper to come out of that. Like the conversation with Morla was was a highly effective one about how, especially since they're in the uh, what, what is it, the swamp of sadness or, um, uh, right, the yeah, the swamp of despair yeah, or something whatever, like that. Whatever, but I mean that's where Morla lives. So. The notion of a, a being that has stayed in a place like this for eons um, has experienced everything that comes by them and still lives in this particular wretched location. Um, and you're getting into a deep conversation, and that's great. And our actual um, antagonist, it's just basically a quick conversation I'm looking to kill. They, he even uh, Gamork brings up that he is a, a a harbinger for something else that wants the nothingness, and you mm-hmm. think you're That's on behind, the third, responsible for it. Yeah, right. you're, yeah you're, whoever he works for is responsible for the nothing. And, and you're feeling like you're on the verge of a major revelation that will really kind of tie this story together, and we don't get it. Right, <laughs> and it doesn't come up again. Well, especially because 10 seconds later, Gamork's dead. Right. <laughs> well, right. And, and, well, for for him being the errand boy for this other entity, that is not the nothingness. The nothingness is what this other entity wants to have happen. We don't ever find out what that entity is, who they are, how, why... Yeah, <laughs> we don't. Keep, right there, there, there's a total lack of satisfaction in there. Well, and and that is that is where I'm feeling like you know we needed more from the actual novel. Right, and, and interestingly enough, okay, you have that element, and one of the things that I do really like about this movie is is that sense that they were actually trying to tie it into the zeitgeist of the day, um, which just tracks across human history anyway, is this notion of letting hopelessness creeping in. That mm-hmm. it, it, if we let the things that that burden us and, and bind us um, bring us down constantly, that we lose all hope and imagination, it this story is essentially saying death of imagination is a terrible, terrible thing. And so you should actively work against that. Otherwise the nothingness comes and we all lose everything. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a great thing, but you've also built up this thing that's supposed to want that to happen. And we didn't get to connect any of it. Well, also we have the, um, the life lesson about not uh, wallowing in your despair because it'll pull you under. Oh, yeah. And there are many people that will claim that this was probably one of the most traumatic moments in a film for them as a young child, oh, yeah. which was be the, the death of uh, Artax, mm-hmm. Atreyu's faithful steed. And it is played up pretty hard in this film. I mean... It does a great job. I think there's people that, like, if you ask them their first really true traumatic, you know, having to deal with death, there's two films that'll either that'll come up. It's this or Transformers. Yes. 
<laughs> and both of them are about the same time. <laughs> they're they're yeah. three years apart. Uh, but no, the, this scene is definitely play. It's a very traumatic and 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 dramatic uh, scene in in this film. And this is an interesting thing between being able to put myself in the time in which I originally saw it and now. Um, I and I can't decide which is better. Um, I remember the drama of seeing Artax die and, and how horrible that was. But watching it now, it plays out so quickly by comparison. The thing I find myself questioning is, does that play out so quickly for me now? One, because I already know it. And Mm -hmm. two, because, I mean, this is a kid's film. Did it hit on what a kid perceives as time passing versus rather an adult's time passing? In which case, if the director knew to do it in the way that he did it and have it be effective for a child audience, kudos to him. Because <laughs> yeah. it could be an attention span thing. It, very possible. And, well, and I also wonder, too, is they wanted it to be dramatic, but they didn't want it to be horrific. No. And so maybe that's why it's done quickly and it's done with like several quick cuts. You know, you don't really see the horse slowly being, uh, you know, dragged under. Right. It's, you know, he's he's up to his knees and then there's a, qu- a, a quick edit and then he's up to his chest and then it's a quick cut, you know, between Atreo and the horse. And then every time you see the horse, he's a little lower. Mm-hmm. So you don't have that, that, that slow methodical, you know, because that would truly be horrific. Sure. I you know, and then that would also be uh, quite a bit more drawn out. So I think it was probably, it's probably one of the most perfect scenes in the movie put in context of it being a kid's movie that you're trying to like get some sort of lesson or point across. No. And and that's where I'm going with this too. Cause we didn't build, we didn't from an adult perspective, you built no relationship between Atreyu and Artax. It was just no, but from a child's point of view, you say Atreyu and Artax are friends that this is his trusty steed and they do everything together to a child. You tell them that that is it's just reality. That's enough. You don't need anything more. You've been told that's it. So and I think that's what I'm feeling in this. And that's I get to separate my brain into my my six-year-old self and my 49-year-old self. The six-year-old self goes, of course, that's that's how it is. And I feel bad. The, or, the horse died and the horse died because it gave up and you shouldn't give up. That That's the lesson. I don't need it to last an hour to get to that point. As an adult, maybe it makes us more stupid. Maybe we need... <laughs> the fact that we need more, uh, maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> Yeah, I, the whole time I'm watching the film, I wasn't not entertained by mm-hmm. it, but I did feel like an adult watching a kid's film. You know, there are some kids' movies where you can watch it as an adult, and it's it's great. Sure. You have a ball. Yeah. Uh, one of the things right now, just recently, very popular, it's been coming up in a lot of conversations, The Muppet Christmas Carol. Yeah. You know... 
Sure, it's a kid's film. Mm-hmm. It's the Muppets. But maybe because it's the Christmas Carol, which is still a very well-known it's and timeless. you know, that's an all-ages, it's a timeless, all-ages kind of story. But you can watch that as a grown man or grown woman, no kids in the room, doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, you're having a ball. Yeah. This one... You know, if you're an adult, there's no kids around, you're watching this film, someone walks in, they're like, why are you watching this? <laughs> uh, I, I get that. I, 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 I'm very much in touch with my inner child. So, uh, Well, it's true. But did, did or did not both of us watch this with our kids? I did watch it once with my kids. This time I watched entirely by myself. Oh, okay. All right. I, of course, I, no one was going to walk in and go, "What the hell?" That's true. You don't have. <laughs> you don't have. No one's. No one's going to be wondering what you're doing. Right. But yeah, honestly, going back, I think more people would wonder what the hell I was watching when I was watching Vicious Lips versus Brendan's <laughs> story. There is that. Um, <laughs> it, interestingly enough, and I, I assume we would get into this at some point anyways, is um, I have to get into uh, the effects and the use of puppetry. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. Which I will make uh, no bones about. Uh, I, in this, it's amazing. Uh, I, I mean, yeah. it is dated. It. I, I will very fairly say uh, it's not the... You can do better now <laughs> than you could in 1984, but um, but still, the fact that they all of the characters, whether they are played by a human being or animated by a human being, they are physically present. They are they are the scale that they are, and in some cases, they are huge. Uh, yeah, Falcor was apparently. I mean, what you see is, I mean, he was enormous. He's like a hundred feet long, kind of thing. I even remember something back in the day where I watched some of the making of the Neverending Story because the puppetry that went into Falcor's head, in particular, was just absolutely amazing. And what's funny is he, watching it now, and as an adult, and you're watching. Falcor move around and try to talk and, and make facial features. The fact that the face makes as many different facial features as it does is absolutely insane. It's amazing stuff. You can watch it malfunction. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are times mouth does not keep pace with dialogue and, and um, all of a sudden an eyebrow starts just kind of doing a thing. <laughs> <laughs> thing I'm like I don't know if you meant to be doing that but it made it into the film <laughs> absolutely we need to talk about that because that is the whole point of you know this series this, I mean regardless of whether you are watching it as a child or as an adult whether you are completely immersed in the story it's telling or whether you are picking apart you know the, the, the different things that don't quite work or you're not sure what they are going for this one does indeed look pretty mm-hmm. The world they have built, the characters that inhabit this world, are—they're just amazing. You—it's one of those sets where you wish you could be on the set to see it because there are some things that don't—that aren't on the screen long enough. Uh, when you're at the uh, the 
the crystal, uh, what was or the, the white tower. tower, the ivory tower, and the people of Fantasia, and all the different uh, beings and creatures that are there. I want to spend hours looking at these things, mm-hmm. and they just pass by like they're like normal things. Yeah, no, uh, and they put in a lot of work into what ended up just being set dressing. Yeah. And, and the fact that they're all physically in a space that looks like this. There's, this is pre-CGI, folks. I mean, right. the ivory tower, um, the, the flower petal thing that sat in the middle where they all gathered around was there. <laughs> that was a thing. And they were all in it. And all of these creatures were things that were there. They're physically on set. And like... It had to be kind of even just a little awe-inspiring just to stand around it all. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, the creatures, the ones that were walking with like the, you know, the, the giant heads or the ones that looked like two faces but sort of smashed together mm-hmm. so they were like half and half but still two. It was just, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how, how are we not spending more time with these characters? I know. How much work did the production crew put into assembling these things for that two-second appearance on screen? And it's just like, it's almost painful <laughs> to think about with all that hard work, and that's all you got. <laughs> well, and, and again, we, we already started to talk a little about Falcor, but if you were a child of of the this time who didn't want to get on the back of falcor you know i don't know if you still can but for the longest time there was apparently a place in germany where you could uh, quote unquote ride falcor you could sit on his yeah you know, sit on his back and oh, they still had the original puppet it not it wasn't the original puppet but it was effectively a recreation or whatever so and it, i guess it would move it it's a little bit just like you know going to the store and putting the penny sure. in the horse and whatever but this was Falcor. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, okay. I don't know anyone that wouldn't want to do that. That'd be one of those things where it's like, okay. Yeah, I know I'm a grown up, but okay. <laughs> quick, quick, come on, son. We're just, I, I need you to come along so this doesn't look as weird as it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want you with me, but be nearby. <laughs> Tell. Tell everybody in the crowd that you wanted Dad to go sit on it. <laughs> I need you to hold the camera. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, all of the creatures, all uh, Fantasia itself, so what what they did that was otherworldly. I mean, lots of it was just lo- uh, rolling landscape and such that you could find in a number of locales. But then when you get into like the swamp, it, um, that. They did an amazing job putting the... I can't even imagine, like... I was always the clean kid, never wanted to get dirty, so Atreyu slogging through that just makes me uncomfortable to the core. <laughs> um, and the fact that he just kept doing it... And, and, and I mean, seriously, the actor had to go into this this slog <laughs> and do it. And, like, that was just... It, it's otherworldly. Uh, and also, apparently, almost lost his life. Oh, really? Uh, there was a couple instances that he was almost very seriously injured. Uh, uh, Noah Hathaway apparently got his 
foot caught in the elevator that was lowering the horse, and it pulled him under the water. Jeez. Oh, and uh, I, I read um, that he was actually unconscious by the time they got him out. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> That's a little scary. Yeah, I just wonder, you know, Germany, 1984, health and safety may not have been as strong as, you know, you might have. <laughs> as much as you, you would have liked. Yeah. Um, is, yeah, is it just me or when you see sets like the swamp where it's just sludge and mud and just black, you know, do you ever think, God, the cleanup. I know, right? <laughs> when you're done shooting that. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, that doesn't look like an actual real swamp. This looks like something they made, but they did it so effectively. But yeah, yeah you think in the creation of such a thing... Where did it all come from, and then where did it all go? <laughs> That's what I mean. I'm thinking, the where does it go? It's got to be just an absolute nightmare for the production crew to have to cl- forget building it. you got to clean that up. And <laughs> so, somewhere there's an attraction where you just go see the, <laughs> the, right. the well, bog. I'm just thinking, yeah. Oh, oh you're going to shoot the bog this week? That's great. But we did this soundstage by Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for this other production, and part of what uh, always made uh, that makes it pretty, uh, aside from the am- amount of detail that they went into with the practical effects that, the, that they did, is this is one where even in 2022, the music that they pair with their scenery hits just right. Um. Anytime they'd come across the ivory tower and you'd hear that high-pitched kind of bell song that they would play, mm. um, it just sounded grand. It, 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 it elevated the film quite a bit. I think I'd be really curious. Apparently, the uh, German version of the film has a completely different score. Really. Uh, the the theme song that is so connected to this film mm-hmm. that was an actual like it was a hit big song hit. At, the, at the time too. It was released. It was actually released as a single in '84 and found its way to pretty high up on a bunch of U.S. and U.K. Uh, music charts. Mm-hmm. But that song does not appear in the German version, and instead it just features an, an orchestral score written by composer uh, Klaus Doldinger. Mm. So I'd be really curious to watch this film in the you know, the German version. Now I kind of want to catch the German version and also the novel. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know if there was any uh, changes in the... Um, in the story. Scenes. Yeah. yeah, in the story with the German version. But yeah, I found it really interesting that the music was all different. So no theme song, and then a lot of the uh, sort of what's described as like techno pop incidental music not there that's strictly in the english language version interesting. or not the english language but the uh the us and i guess the uk version interesting now well yeah now now i want to dig that up uh i can't and, and i don't know that you're a stranger things guy um no i'm not but i did hear that this song kind of got uh, revisited I can't not talk about it because it is one of the highlights 
of the second season, uh, uh, or is that second or third season? I'm getting them confused now. I think it's third. I thought I read second. I'm going to go with second. No, it is third. Mm, it's mm-hmm. third. No, I, I know for a fact it's third. Um, but yes, uh, because the song is used to great effect in a scene where it does not belong. <laughs> because it, this is the song. It, it, there's a character who has a girlfriend that starts to sound a lot like my girlfriend in Canada, um, only to find out that the girl is real. They have a relationship by ham radio because they're not in the same state. And the only way the girl will help is if the boy sings the song with her. And this is all <laughs> happening at the climax of the season. So they are literally everybody's in the thick of the plan. And all of it hinges on getting information out of this girl that she will not give until they sing this song as a duet. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> so now even watching that, you can't help but think about this scene. And you're just like, you just laugh out loud when it happens. And the fact that the funny part is they're actually pretty good at singing it. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. So it's just kind of funny. This is that, this is one of those movies that for those that have seen it and those that understand the eighties and all that, or been there, um, it is forever in your memory. Yeah. No, absolutely. It was an earworm back in 1984, and you can't help but... I mean, it's one of those songs that, despite how long it's been since I've seen the film, it still lives up here. You know, I did not need to watch this film to be reminded of this song. But yes, it'll stick and it'll burrow its way into your brain. Um, mm. But again, it, 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 it's part of what made this that it fits with our theme. It, it, the music was pretty. The visuals were pretty. The story was fun. Um, was it a fantastic movie? Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But it did really well. Um as I said, at the time, it was one of the largest and most expensive films produced outside of the U.S. Apparently, they spent about $26 million. It grossed about $20 million U.S. and Germany, and then did about the same in the States. Okay. So, that's not too bad, 1984. And that, that this is all, I believe, 1984 dollars, too. Sure. So. Um, Made almost twice what it cost. Yeah. Total worldwide gross, about $100 million. So, not bad. So, yeah, it, it was, I think, would be considered a successful film. Yes, quite. Shall we get into the reviews of the day? Before you do, let's go. just read, like I said, I had just a couple things as far as what other people oh, sure. thought of uh, 
just listeners and uh, and, and and friends thought of the film. Uh, the only thing I got, I got two things. I got one thing just on Facebook. Um, I already closed it, but it was just a couple of the people that commented uh, that it pretty much was the. Uh, actually, let me just pull it up so I can have it again. That's funny. Yeah. Both Skip Jones and uh, Chris Cree commented. And they pretty much just with single lines. I think they were talking about the death of Artax, yeah, <laughs> about triggering a major life trauma. <laughs> and uh, Chris Cree, I think her just description of the film, adventure with a seriously sad part. <laughs> <laughs> but I got a little bit more out of Matt over on the Discord channel. He says the never-ending story, love it um, or hate it, it was a children's movie with grief and loss as a subject matter. It wasn't some Disney movie where a character loses a parent and then has to rise up and be the hero. It's one where characters lose loved ones and have to find reasons to keep going even if they don't want to. It has a happy ending, but it's dark, scary, and showed a generation that things are not always perfect. That's very yeah, very yeah. insightful uh, look, read on that film. Yeah, that's an astute telling of it. But uh, that's all I got. All right, we'll get into some of the reviews. Uh, we'll start with our our, our friend and lost, uh, Roger Ebert. Uh, he's always good for stuff. He gave it actually three stars, uh, so not bad. I have to start with his opening out of this, though, because it's such a treat. Uh, it says, how's this for a threat? The kingdom of Fantasia is about to be wiped out. And the enemy isn't an evil wizard or thermonuclear device. It's nothingness. That's right. An inexorable wave of nothingness is sweeping over the kingdom, destroying everything in its path. Were children's movies this nihilistic in the old days? (laughs) So um, he really latched on to that whole thing that uh, Matt was just talking about. the, The whole, this is... It may ha- end happy, but it is not. It n- doesn't get you there in the way that a Disney movie does. Um, in the end, he goes, uh, "The never-ending story is about the unfolding of a story, and so the framing device of the kid hidden in a, his school attic, breathlessly turning the pages, is interesting. It lets kids know that the story isn't just somehow happening." That storytelling is a never-ending act of the imagination. And to that point, I mean, it does. It it, it goes with the idea of when you read a book, you put into it what you bring to that story. That's part of Mm -hmm. the joy of reading. And what's interesting about any book, especially a good one that you want to go back to, is even though all the words on the page will be exactly the same the next time you read it, depending on where you are in your life, it will take on new meaning. It will have new elements. And that's what this told, too, is the story is all never ends because it will always change depending on your perspective. Absolutely. And I think we've seen that in just actually watching the film, too. Yes, it's my whole struggle between my younger self and my older self. I can put myself in both positions and appreciate them for what they are, but they are dramatically different. Mm -hmm. And then we get into some of the others. Uh, Boston Globe, this is where I just get snippets. Um, Boston Globe, Michael Blowen, uh, actually like this film, said, The never-ending story, Wolfgang Peterson's sophisticated 
fantasy film is so wonderfully appropriate to children that it seems to have been made by kids. But there is enough artistic merit in the tale that to enchant adults equally. Then they start getting a little more dismal. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is where I think what we're talking about, that where you are in your life will dictate what this film means to you. Just like any story that you read. Um, from Empire, Ian Nathan wrote, This was sweet and charming at the time, but now it just lacks either the comedy or sophistication of kids' fantasy film that we've all become accustomed to. I assume that this particular review probably came at a later date. Right, yeah, and I think that's a kind of an unfair... I, I think that's a little unfair to just to sit there and say that it's not it's not like what we get nowadays. Yeah, no, because you can't. So that that doesn't make it necessarily any worse or better. No, it doesn't. Nor nor was it made with the intention of uh, we're really seeing if we can really draw in an audience thirty years from now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's made for the audience of the day, mm-hmm. and it was effective for the audience of the day. And then you get into the really terrible. <laughs> Oh, God. The New York Times, Vincent Canby, and I know we've read stuff from him before. The never-ending story is a graceless, humorless fantasy for children, combining live actors and animated creatures in mostly imaginary settings. I'm like, well, while you you seem to have understood what you watched, you didn't understand it was for children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do you sit there and say it's for children and then bash it for being for children? <laughs> it's like you're complaining that it was made for this. This kid's movie was made for children. Yes. Uh, how, how, yeah. How, how dare it actually effectively do what it set out to do? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I th- this gets into where uh, I love that I get to be the one to go look up the cri- critics because critics drive me absolutely bonkers. They try so hard to sound so much more important than they actually are when they don't necessarily understand the material to which they are speaking about. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think any real, true, harsh criticism could be leveled towards this. I think if it, it was, it, it's it's unfair. Yes, you can pick apart things like we are as adults and everything, sure. but yeah, as a kid's movie, it's... It is very serviceable. It's it's more than serviceable. It's a fun kids movie. It is a gorgeous looking movie. It's fantastic production design from beginning to end. Yeah, I just I I don't think you can you certainly can't hate this film. No, as a 49-year-old, I can appreciate this as much as I would have at the time when I was closer to 8 or 9. So, I mean, it's ridiculous to level it against great art films of the day. That's not what it set out to do, but I mean, I still very much like this film. I enjoyed it sitting there by myself watching it. I didn't feel uncomfortable in doing so. Uh, I, I, in, I was again, re amazed by the level of, uh, uh, sophistication in, in their, uh, puppetry and animation, that went along with the actual physical people being there. It was just fun. Right. And like you point out, it, it 
it is a harder story than than a normal ch- children's story, but I think in a good one to tell. No, absolutely. No, it's definitely a, something that probably doesn't really get uh, expressed in children's films and television as much as it should. The world is not Pollyanna all the time. <laughs> so, right. So yeah, I, th- I think Matt definitely nailed it. You know, the whole idea is that you're you're not rising up and overcoming your you're just you're surviving and that's okay. Yeah, and 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 being there and being a part of something is sometimes as important as being the hero. Right. Like Bastion didn't have to do anything special. He wasn't never in any danger. He just had to imagine that he was part of this, and that was enough. Well, I think that will probably do it then. You got anything else oh, no, I th- you wanted to mention? No, I thought this was a great conversation on this particular film. It's fun to revisit this one. Absolutely. Well, the next film we are going to be revisiting is another one that I have not seen since it first came out on... Uh, Maybe it was DVD. <laughs> I know. I know. It was, I I grabbed it from a blockbuster. Uh, it's Last Action Hero from 1993. This is going to be a lot of fun. I remember watching this film and thinking it was not appreciated then. So I'm really curious to rewatch it now after all these years and and see if I'm like uh, see if I agree with my 1993 self. And here's what's really going to be interesting. I've never sat through the whole thing. Really? Now that I think about it, I I mean, I know of it. I know of some scenes from it. I have never watched it beginning to end. I didn't see it when it came out. um, And I never sat it for it since. Interesting. So I'm going to come at this one as a complete novice. Interesting. Well, as far as our history with films, this is kind of a switcheroo. Yes. <laughs> I, I've definitely done some uh, some television that you haven't seen before and introduced you to, but when it comes to films, I'm hard-pressed to find one. Yeah, usually that I, can, I got you beat. <laughs> yeah, so very interesting. Yeah, so this will be fun. Yeah, that'll be a really good one. Uh, any thoughts on the on the never-ending story or the last action hero? Please send them our way, timeshifterspodcast at gmail.com, or follow the link in the show notes to all the different social media platforms that you can uh, post or leave comments there. Well, we'd, be, uh, we'd be thrilled to hear from you. And I guess that'll do it for this one. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Thanks very much for listening. Bye. See ya.